Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to The Ruck Podcast in association with The Times and Sunday Times. This is the second part of a special programme on the 10th anniversary of the Bloodgate Scandal a talk sports studio panel hosted by Russ Williams with journalist Mark Suster and former Harlequins player George Robson reviews the events of a decade ago and wonders whether there are still more repercussions to come even after all this time. We heard from some of the biggest names in rugby union in addition to some of the key figures who were literally in the eye of the storm. The line you can't cross from the doping side of thing or anything is a line you cannot cross. The culture at a club was such that it was the norm and I thought nothing of it as I was running onto the pitch and the physio came over to me and said, you're coming off for blood. This for me is like drug taking. I, I think it was a disgrace. When a bomb goes off, you get collateral damage and uh, innocent bystanders can get hurt and that's what happened. What would he do? What would he do to win a match? Or what wouldn't he do? to win a match and obviously he'll go pretty low to win a match we tried it and it didn't work and uh, we got caught well it really was a, a truly fascinating hour of radio Mark Suster the former rugby correspondent of the Times was the presenter put it together with James Savundra first and foremost Absolutely. fascinating listen thank you very much disturbing in parts and uh, George Robson, who was part of that Quinns team in that game and part of Harley Quinns is with us. A very warm welcome to you as well, George. Um, Rugby union, tough game, played by decent men, an honest code of sport, played in a Corinthian spirit with honesty. That's what people who watch rugby thought. And then, as we've discovered, Mark, um, I, I suppose in a way like Ben Johnson was to athletics, um, Bloodgate had a similar effect. It, it was seismic, wasn't it, on the game of rugby union? And in cricket, the sandpaper. It, yeah, exactly. It, it's, a, it's a moment in a sport which almost comes to define it. And uh, as, as you alluded to, it was, it was so unexpected. And why it blew up, I think, was because, as Nigel Owens talked about, it seemed to go, it was counterintuitive to what everyone thought rugby stood for. The honour, integrity, uh, they sneered at football. Oh, yeah, yeah, let them get on with it. Rugby, we can hold ourselves up there as, uh, as proper men and guardians of the code. And this unfolding absolutely destroyed that whole myth. And I think probably for the best. George, um, I suppose the obvious question to ask you first and foremost is you were in the game. 
did you have any inclination whatsoever of what was going to happen? No, I, I, I can answer that very directly, no. But I think it would be probably worth taking a step back for a minute and actually put a bit of context on onto the whole situation because we've got to remember rugby turned professional in, what, 95, is it, guys? 95? 95. 95. Yeah. So if you compare that to, to a lot of other sports, it was still quite, you know, a young sport in 2009. It's still quite a young sport today. Um, so... You know, we look at we look at the image of the game and everything else. Professionalism hadn't been around that long, and I feel like when that comes in, you've got different pressures, different things happen. People push rules. Regulation isn't necessarily where it should be. If you look at things today with with uh, VR, you know, everything going on, there's no room for any kind of uh, subterfuge or people pushing the limits. And at the time, I think. The game had turned professional fairly recently, and uh, and people were out to push the rules. To me, it was the tectonic plates of the last vestiges of amateurism, and the governing bodies, the authorities, not keeping up with the rapid advances that professional professionalism was making. Therefore, loopholes were exploited, and this anything anything goes culture was was allowed to to fester and foster, which, as you say, we've seen the consequences of that. Yeah. Do you think, George? Um, Dean Richards and his win-at-all-costs mentality, which he undoubtedly had and probably still has, although perhaps not quite as much. Um, do you think that came from the game turning professional where the stakes became higher? I think when, I mean, he's probably the most uh, decorated coach, I think, uh, who's, who's in the game at the moment um, in terms of what he achieved at Leicester. Um, and he came from that culture of winning things, uh, and, and I'm sure it was a, a take no prisoners, get the job done, physical abrasive culture, because that's what came to Quinns, uh, and it, and it's let's be honest, it, it works. Um, I think you know if you if you if you again if you if you look at it in the moment, obviously things went badly wrong, uh, and in the in the, the documentary earlier on. Dean clearly said, "Look, you know, I took it too far. I, you know, I, I, I wish I hadn't done these things, and and he's shown remorse for that, and he's he's moving on with his coaching career now. But there's, it's undoubtedly, it undoubtedly went too far." Let's hear from Tom Williams, one of the central characters in Bloodgate, and here he is talking about um, Harlequin's director of rugby, Dean Richards, and the culture. It was certainly a very successful and a winning mentality was was there and probably at all costs, unfortunately. If you think about the coercive nature of the culture then, it was do what you need to do to get the job done. And uh, in some respects, it led to us having relative success, uh, but also it led to us blurring the lines between, or muddying the waters is probably a better term, between what is right and wrong in terms of sporting context and actually outside of sport as well. George Dean Richards, very formidable figure, not only as a player, giant of a man, a bear of a man. Uh, on a personal level, did he ever frighten you? Did he intimidate you? I mean, I, I mean, I can speak for myself, um, and I think put stature aside. Anyone who's in a position of power, right? I mean, probably no more intimidated than I am of you right now, asking me questions on on the radio. You know, it's it's one of those things where. He's an imposing character, but that's rugby. It's an imposing sport. Um, and there's lots of imposing characters in rugby. I, th I think Dean uh, had a very um, good handle of how to manage power 
in, in a rugby organisation because you need to do that to be successful. If you look at any of the uh, if you look at any of the, the successful directors of rugby across the board, they all know how to manage power, and and there's there's very little uh, doubt about who's in charge in any of these setups. So I don't think that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'd have been afraid of this. There's lots of coaches you could probably <laughs> add to that list. Where you know, Maybe. Olivier Azama Oyanach wasn't too much of a shrinking violet. And if you ask the guys in the England team at the moment, uh, are they afraid of Eddie Jones? Probably a little bit. Yeah, yeah maybe. So. Harlequins had a lot of ambition. Uh, their owner, the people who ran it at the top level, wanted it to be one of the top clubs. And so Richards would have been a coach that would have, you know, or a director of rub- rugby, but Mark, that would have suited them down to the ground or so they thought. Well, I think it was a huge shock to the system, which is, which is George has alluded to. But I think one of the fascinating elements for me is Leicester and the crucible, I think. Well, for with the crucible of where that win-at-all-cost mentality emanated from. You see, you know, the, the, the Martin Johnsons, the Richard Cockrells, the Dean Richards. These men were tough, hard, uncompromising. And they've taken that into their coaching with, with some good results and some bad. The upside is, as, as we've seen, that, you know, look at Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. Look at Jose Mourinho. These men, they're tough, they're hard, they're uncompromising. But they get results. And you've got to weigh up what is more important, results or doing being a nice club which is happy to be second best and that's what Harlequins were and that's what they wanted to change well, there's an interesting point there I mean we've spoken about it before but I remember Dean bringing in a couple of former players to the stoop to tell us about the culture and the history of the club and the message was basically look we're not that good in the league but we love a good run in the cup and that's what being at Quinns is all about and I remember Dean sort of not being very happy with that message that had come across and, and let's be realistic he came in to shake things up and, and drive performance. And if you're going to have an impact in what is essentially the club's been relegated, you get them back in from the championship to be promoted. It's only a few years later where we're you know we're, we're challenging in knockout rugby in, in the uh, in the Heineken Cup, which is the best competition competition you can be in. So to to oversee that turnaround, it's going to take a strong character. Obviously, what then ended up happening, you know, is a step too far. What did your teammates? make of Dean Richards I mean what did, what did they say in the changing room after the game or after training um, uh, was there a one view of him that uh, sort of pervade over everything else I, well, I, th- I think it would depend on exactly which person in the team you ask it would be the same in any rugby club or, or football club or any sports organisation if you're getting picked I'm sure he's a great guy if you're, if you're, if you're out your contract's up you're not getting renewed then you know you're not going to be not really popular I think that certain people uh, it, was, it was a tough culture to be in um, I think certain people responded well to that culture and got on with it. People that didn't didn't hang around very long, and, and that, I think that's 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 nothing too unusual in rugby. When we were listening, Mark, to your documentary, it, it, it was making perfect sense. There's revelations on it that will come to a little later on this hour. We also sat down and watched some of the pictures from the game itself, and uh, without going massively into it, uh, I mean, you you could see when you look back now at the footage you know Williams coming off and winking um, there was Stuart Barnes eminent journalist on, on the subject of rugby television presenter, former England international who actually in the commentary says well uh, Tom Williams uh, uh, he looks as though he's hit himself well, because he, he knew he hadn't been involved in a collision with anyone. Well it, it, exactly and he, and he um it just makes the whole thing that more comedic, though, that, 
It's Keystone Cops. It's Keystone Cops. It is utterly bizarre that they think, looking back, how could they allow themselves to get into the, this position of biting into a blood capsule, blood blood with, with water pouring out of the... It, it was just a nonsense. And then the wink. You think, how the heck could this happen? And as I say, on one level, it may not have gone on to anything, but the, the, the cut lip and, the, and everything that flowed from that mm. really turned it into the big scandal. Well, we'll come we on saw. to that in a minute, but you're right. The wink gave an indication that something wasn't quite right, and it turned out to be the case. We are reacting to our definitive documentary, Bloodgate, 10 years on in the studio, Mark Sooster and... George Robson, the former Harlequins player, and rugby was not in a good place, I think it's fair to say, in 2009, even before the Bloodgate scandal was exposed. Then RFU Chief Executive Francis, Francis Barron explains all. It happened at a particularly difficult time uh, for the game generally um, because there were a whole bunch of incidents that happened in a relatively short period of time between 2008 and 2009 um, encompassing problems at, on the England tour in New Zealand in 2008 with um, embarrassing uh, drug episodes involving senior players, some of them England players at Bath Rugby uh, in 2008 and early 2009 and then of course the whole Bloodgate episode at Harlequins in April 2009 so um, it was a veritable I suppose storm of incidents that happened in a relatively short period of time that cast a real shadow over everything that we in the game thought and still do believe are the values and the, the core values of the game um, so yes, um, the right word to use would be crisis. It was a crisis at that time. That's the way that the RFU looked at it. Francis Barron, the former chief executive of that organisation, speaking there, Mark, and it, it was pretty big stuff, wasn't that's it? Because a, it was coming thick and fast. That's a pretty huge rap sheet, isn't it? Uh, you know, coming within sort of a twelve-month period. You know, blow after blow hitting the image of rugby, and I think. You can extend it even to 2011. Martin Johnson, again, I alluded to the Leicester Crucible, I think. And the World Cup, England's World Cup, that was another awful time for the game. But if we wind back to Bloodgate, um, I think it's fair to say that in English rugby, someone hit the panic station button because the repercussions and the implications of what was going on was having severe damage to the game. I know, as, as Francis Barron told us, sponsors were knocking on the door saying, what the heck is going on? You've got to clean up this game. Otherwise, we're out. And that's a multi-million pound consequence for the union to have to bear. And the game was really un, un, under threat, I think it's fair to say, because you know, with financial implications of no sponsorship and a dirty game weren't worth thinking about. What are your memories, George, at that time? And a, a sense of crisis in the game of rugby union. I mean, it sounds pretty dark and ominous uh, from this perspective of you guys right now talking about it. I mean, from a playing point of view, I was in my sort of early 20s living the dream playing professional rugby. So it was quite an interesting time because 
rugby didn't quite have the following or the or the uh, the spotlight on it that that uh, other sports have in the UK at the time. Uh, so it would be you know guys would go out do stupid stuff, no one would really know about it, and then, then nothing you wouldn't hear anything about it. And and I think what we found in this kind of period of time off the pitch with the off the pitch stuff that was just referenced is uh, rugby players started to find out that we couldn't get away with uh, you know all the shenanigans and unacceptable behaviour and we'd, we'd be held accountable uh, I remember one social we talk about the, some of the some of the cocaine stuff I remember there was one social where uh, us and the bath team were at the same social place in, in Putney and uh and one of our guys ended up chinning one of their guys, knocking him out. It was only—I mean, I was incredibly naive, and I remember—I remember like looking back. It's like, oh yeah, that summer when everything came out about the drugs and everything else, and someone got knocked out in their fight. Something. I wondered why some of those guys were really intense. You know, I was literally that <laughs> yeah. naive. Literally that naive. Um, and as we found out subsequently, it's because there were—you know—some of them were on cocaine. But yeah. and I, I think to add to add to that, when we spoke to Brana Driscoll, he was talking about. <laughs> The advent of social media about 207, 208, when it all became, you know, on your phone, you could do what you want and show everything. But he said up to then, it was the Wild West. He said, we used to go and do things. We loved it. We were were out of the public eye and it was fantastic. But then this sort of era, that all changed. And and then it was... And then it was be, be on your careful, best behaviour. Yeah, be be, be well, on your yes. best behaviour and make sure you know you know who's where as well. Because uh, you know sometimes things would get blown out of proportion as well. And there'd be guys who'd you know have a few drinks, get drunk, and then people would take the mic. You know, so yeah. But with Bloodgate, there was one player, wasn't there? Tom Williams, who was very much for a while, pretty much on his own. Uh, that would that would be fair, wouldn't it, Mark? Yes, I think so. And, and that's what the. Um, the, the, the fact that he was hung out to dry after that first hearing, the fact that it was an insult to the intelligence that people would, would was expected to think Tom Williams, a 25-year-old, a fringe player, had concocted this on his own, manufactured this on his own, executed this on his own. It didn't bear scrutiny. And you can see why. Thereafter, ERC, who you've got to praise in this instance, were keen to pursue it. And then we see the whole thing unfolding as we did. Um, the Rugby Players Association Chief Executive, Damien Hopley, fortunately for Tom Williams, stepped in to save him, really. He was initially, as you said, Mark, you know, found solely guilty for Bloodgate. And uh, here is Damien explaining how rugby was struggling to exist in the professional era. It was it was sort of growing pains of the game actually trying to move forward. And um, this was one of the... This was obviously one of the... One of the standout areas I mean you know Tom was on the front page of the Daily Telegraph for four or five days the headline picture all the pressure that went with it um, but uh, yeah, maybe it was a, it was a, a much needed wake up call about behaviours and where the game was going um, and um, I think valuable lessons have been learned and have almost been written into the sort of way that the game now conducts itself around the, the um, values of the game, uh, illicit drug testing programs, all of the various things that are now imb- embedded within rugby in this country um, came out of what was a very difficult time. Yeah, it was a difficult time. Damien Hopley there. And, and, and you do get a sense that uh, Damien obviously was 
very protective over Tom Williams. And as you were saying, you know, even after the event and it became public, it was almost like Quinns were trying to cover up what really went on and were quite happy for Tom to take the rap. Well, absolutely. It was such a febrile atmosphere. This was going on for about four months. And as, as Damon alludes to, front page story day after day, the, the, the cut lip, the this, the that and the other. When was it going to stop? And I think, um, as as Tom alluded to, he was started negotiating with Harlequin saying, look, you know that it wasn't just me. I know it wasn't just me. So can we come to some sort of arrangement where we both can come out of this with a, a smatter of dignity? That was unsuccessful. Hopley then brought in lawyers and I think um, got Tom to talk to the board. And from that point on, I think the decision was made, um, let's come clean. What was the atmosphere like in... Uh, the team and the club uh, I mean was it like don't speak to Tom don't talk to him about it or were you allowed to talk openly about what had happened and what was happening to him I, I think the uh, from my recollection at the time um, I think there was a little bit of a split in the, in the club there would have been guys who were almost you know just shut up take the punishment and get on with it there would have been other guys who maybe were one way or the other, but they didn't really want to say anything because they're positioned in the group. And from my own point of view, I do remember feeling like this is pretty tough on uh, on Tommy. And that's, that's part of the reason why I've, I've got no problem today. I mean, let's be honest, Tom's, Tom's had the repercussions, Dean's had repercussions, other people have had repercussions, you know, but there are other people throughout, throughout you know, you know, I only speak for myself, but for example, the, the, the game where I've come off with it, uh, Gauze or what have you, and I, I look at Tom, I looked at Tom, I remember looking back at Tommy in that situation and going, well, yeah, I mean, it could easily be quite, you know, potentially a few people. When, and, when you say a gauze, yeah, can you just explain so a I just, bit I just more? Mean, I, mean, I mean like a bandage, right, with blood on it. Yeah, I know what gauze and is, then, but yeah, on what your significance head, does this on have? On your head. Yes. And then when you, to, to, to uh, you know, as described in the documentary, to get a player off the pitch and a blood substitution, as yeah. has been mentioned. So you would have gauze with some, so I, 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 somebody else's blood or me, a liquid? For me, for me, it was a one-off occasion. I was given, I've given a piece of gauze on my head, right, we need to get you off. Boom, off you go. Yeah. Show, show, no, showed the... Showed the uh, the official the, the the blood came straight off, but the point is, it I can tell you it wasn't just Tom, right? So as a player, I can sp- I'm only prepared to speak for, about my own experience. Sure. And my experience was that I I was in a situation where I did that, and if I look back at that now, I think that's totally ridiculous. But it, for me, it goes to show if you've got a culture that creates these norms, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm at the moment I'm doing uh, an MBA at uh, Sorry Business School at Oxford, and you know we've done some really interesting work on culture and how organisations change, corporate turnaround, all these different things. And for me, this was a really uh, interesting lesson early on. I'm 24, 23, 24 years old, learning these lessons in a rugby environment of when um, when there's there's someone with a lot of power exercising it. Social norms can be changed and accepted. Yeah, uh, they're clearly out of line. That's what we do here. Get on with it because yeah. you're a young player. Yeah. Very honest of you. Thank you, George. George Robson and Mark Suster. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've just heard with my studio guests Mark Suster and George Robson, the former Harlequins player, instances of cheating in the game of rugby union. And Dean Richards was banned from coaching in rugby for three years following Bloodgate. And he says that this was not a one-off. It has been going on, and um, and and it's strange because it was it it came from our um, some of our players who asked whether we could do it, and I said, "Look, I'm not into to doing that, and uh, not prepared to do that." It puts the person who's doing it in a very awkward position. So they it, it later transpired that uh, we decided that uh, we'd give the the blood capsule a go, and. Uh, and, it, and we failed miserably, and um, we did it on, I think, five occasions. But, you know, we, we, we tried it, and it didn't work, and, uh, and we got caught. Dean Richards on uh, prevalent cheating with blood in the game. Well, fake blood, anyway, in most cases, we think. Apart from your gauze, George, who knows what was on that? <laughs> could be Ribena, potentially. But it could have been. Ribena wouldn't look like blood, I don't think. Mark, when you and James were sort of doing all your exhaustive research and, and trying to talk to people to make the documentary Bloodgate 10 years on, I know that it took you a long while and um, you took some unexpected turns, didn't you? We did indeed. When we first set out on this, we we thought we just didn't want to um, recycle what happened on that day. We wanted to take it further, find out what lessons had been learned and see if, if as um, suggested, that it was far great, in far greater use than, than, than perhaps just a one-off. And as I say, I think over the course of a month, we went to Wales, Ireland and all around England and had interviews with 20 different individuals who were involved. And each one peeled another layer back and revealed something startling that we thought, my goodness me, where this is going. And then we hit pay dirt. Well, I think from a journalistic point of view, it was pay dirt. Someone said, Mark, I think you better see this. And this is a three page document marked confidential top and bottom. And it's dated the 15th of September 2009. It was a report, as we alluded to and as we mentioned in the documentary, a report into the image of the game task force. And this was a meeting between Dean Richards and Jeff Blackett, who at the time was head of discipline at the RFU. And it was the RFU trying to drill down to really find out how deep this was and how extensive this whole thing was. Um, and it makes absolutely fascinating reading. Um, first of all, it, it set out that Dean Richards was granted immunity from any further action from anything he said in this report. And Jeff Blackett also guaranteed um, uh, anonymity, or immunity, I should say, 
against anyone that Richards named. Now, the fact that Richards was able to and wanted to and actually did provide names and incidents, which he alleges, um, uh, there's seven in all, five of which allegedly involve blood, two um, front row forward replacements. And the allegations, his claims, were that it went to the highest, highest level in English rugby. Now, that's pretty staggering. For legal reasons, obviously, we can't go naming names and that sort of thing, but oh, no. suffice to say that um, the, the allegation from Richards was that it went to the very top. And another very interesting part of this document is that from the outset at this meeting, Richards is told that um, after this, after part of the suspension had been served, perhaps 12 to 18 months, says Blackett, Dean Richards may apply for remission. So already, at the start, he knew he wasn't going to mm. actually serve you the full three term. It was no, I think, Mark, people listening will be thinking, hang on a minute, Dean Richards is having this conversation. There is essentially an amnesty for people that are named in this document, isn't there? Yeah, that's right? exactly as it reads. And then there'll be people saying, well, OK, look, we just heard from Dean, a three-year ban, he's now at the Newcastle Falcons... There will be people thinking, well, hang on a minute, this is pretty serious stuff he was involved in. How on earth is he allowed to be back in the game? But you can argue Sandpapergate with, with the cricketers. We've got well, two of the one, people yeah. involved in that are going to be playing in the Ashes for Australia, we think, against England. Now, they paid their dues. But the people will be thinking, Mark, won't they? Well, you can get away with anything in sport and you never paid the ultimate price. No, no, he didn't. But then, as, as we've heard, it, this Bloodgate saga divided opinion like nothing else. We you know we've heard Brian O'Driscoll, who thinks that Richards should still be banned. And we've heard Clive Woodburn and Michael Checker saying that's pretty much much ado about nothing. So you know, it's perhaps somewhere in the middle. But, you know, it's evident from this document that Richards says he was fuming at what Tom Williams said, at Tom Williams' testimony. Um, he accused ERC of conducting a kangaroo court against him. And then he goes on to say he asserted that the use of fake blood, cutting players, reopening wounds, feigning injury in the front row, jabbing players with an anaesthetic all occur regularly throughout the game. He gave the examples which I've mentioned. And then he goes on to say that he did not condone or be, was never involved in cutting players, nor allowing unnecessary stitches to allow painkilling injections or the use of anaesthetics. But he did admit to um, the use of false blood for sin bin, feigning injury to allow replacement props mm. or uncontested scrums. That's a pretty severe rap sheet. It certainly is. What do you think, George? Should Dean Richards still be involved in professional rugby? I think it depends on uh, on how you view the whole um, the whole scenario. I mean, for me personally, I don't think it really matters what I think because where we are right now, Dean's back in the game. He's coaching at Newcastle. Uh, he's had his three-year ban. Uh, that was what was agreed at the time. You know, we can speculate as to what we, you know, we think morally or not. I mean, I personally take the view that people do make mistakes. If I look at myself when I was a bit younger, and I'm sure you guys have got similar uh, moments where you look back. No. And, but I uh, know you're <laughs> holier than thou, right? But, but, but for me, you know, I, I think people, you know, pe people make mistakes, but, you know, and, and obviously you need to sanction these mistakes. You need to make sure that they, the, the well, mistakes or, or, or bad decisions or whatever you want to call it, but, but you need to uh, sanction them. 
and and draw attention to them and then be able to move on. And and what's clear is what went on was unacceptable. Um, but I do think if you look back, I mean, in, in the documentary, one of the guys asked me in an interview, oh, was that the, the end of it and everything else? And I, I was almost <laughs> baffled that, that they think that after what happened, people would continue to do the same thing. I mean, make no mistake, in, in as far as this area of the game's concerned, with right. blood and everything else, uh, certainly in my experience that was it it was like wow the, you know it, it drew a real line and regulation mm. almost caught up the game in, the, in that in that area I think, other areas I'm not sure I know. think sports fans in general expect sports to be clean we know the world isn't a perfect place you take football for example Mark simulation they call it well, yeah. that's a nice anodyne sort well, of word diving, for cheating, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And you know, so... But I, I don't understand why people have this perception that in sport, suddenly, human beings are going to cease to be human beings, do very human things, do whatever it takes to do as well as they possibly can, push to the boundaries, and certain people in certain circumstances make big errors. It happens Everywhere else happens business, happens other sports, happens you know across all walks of life. So I I, I, I understand it to a degree, but it's it's irrational to, to think that people in sport are going to be any different to the rest of us. And there's one other fascinating aspect um, to this confidential document, and that is that Richards name names, but they're redacted, which is you know, and he says he got this information. He's genuinely convinced that these practices were widespread based not only on his own experience, but also on conversations with other players in the game. He said it would be difficult to get real data from many players, and he cited an example. The senior players at Leicester have agreed not to say anything. I suppose we should, in the final bit, talk a little bit about the legacy of Bloodgate and where rugby is today, and could a similar thing happen again, and also the medical conflictions, and it was... Dr. Wendy Chapman, who cut the lip of Tom Williams as Williams panicked and looked to cover up his fake injury, and Chapman has not worked in the sport since. Chapman's lawyer, Mary O'Rourke, explains the tricky predicament a medical practitioner can face when working in sport. Bloodgate Wars, pure and simply cheating. What it did throw up was the fact that a doctor could be sucked in to that cheating as a result of pressure being put on by the team ethic and the one for all and all for one and don't let the side down. And I think there was very much a feeling for Dr. Chapman, as there are for other sports doctors, that they have to contribute to the sports achievement and they mustn't let the side down and they must um, do everything they can to help win. And it's one of the big questions for doctors in sport. Is it win at all costs? Or do the doctor's own duties mean it cannot be when at all costs because they owe duties to patients, duties to the regulator and duties to the public having confidence in the medical profession? Mm. When is a doctor not really a doctor when they work in sport? Well, for me, the medical, ethic, uh, medical ethics is one of the, the biggest issues to come out of this and also one of the saddest. So if we look at it purely from Dr Chapman's perspective, now, people might say, yes, she breached her Hippocratic Oath. You know, her duty was to her patient or the player at the time. But, you know, I, I think for anyone to understand that the pressure that a doctor in a, in a, in a sporting organisation or a club is under, is their loyalty to the club who employs them? 
or is it to the patient? And there's this awful dilemma that they face. We saw um, that uh, Miss O'Rourke also represents or represented Eva Canero at Chelsea and is also representing Richard Freeman, the doctor who works um, for Sky, you know, Sky Cycling, as was, now being taken over by Ineos. Now, um, the, the, the question is, who is their allegiance to? And should they be put under this sort of pressure? Should a director of rugby, should a head of a sporting organisation exert so much pressure that they, they stand, they go beyond their Hippocratic Oath and destroy themselves? And that's what happened to Wendy Chapman. Yes. She was an accident and emergency doctor. She had a job at Kent Cricket Club she was going to go to. All of that fell away. She had other personal issues which we, we know were not directly related to, to Bloodgate, but all c- taken together have left her with a shell of a woman that she is now. And she had to go down the corridor. She had to go into the little room with Tom Williams. The door was closed. The opposition's doctor is knocking on the door. How would anyone How react? would you cope? Exactly. You've got everyone banging on the door. There's mayhem going on. And you've got this tiny little medical room. And Tom Williams, knowing the consequences of being found out, pleading with her. You know, you ask anyone how they react and you'd, it'd be strange. It'd be interesting to know. And she's not worked in sport since. No, she's, everything gradually has fallen away. To, I, she, I, I think it goes to show, and I think the really important lesson here is, if there's anybody who's in that profession who wants to work in sport, you, you better make sure you, uh, you, you know that you want to work in any sport where you're going to be strong under pressure. And when you're asked to do something like cut a player you're able to have that kind of real strength of inner strength of character to go hold on this is just not right and i think that's that's something that you know i'm not suggesting that 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 should be a working environment of anybody but i i do think it goes to show that if any you know if if, if you're in that environment and you're a doctor you can't you know there's there's no i mean what you guys are saying i i don't disagree with in terms of you had a lot of pressure and it's very hard and everything else but you, you know, as a doctor, you can't cut your patient. But right? the environment has changed. I think in ten years, there's been a sea change in things. Protocols have been introduced. Players at clubs who feel under pressure are now told actually there is a representative you can go and talk to if you feel intimidated. So things have moved on, and that's one of the positive mm. things mm. that have come out of, I, of. Are you saying that a blood gate? in 2019 uh, probably couldn't happen I, I, again. I, I'm adamant it couldn't happen. And we, so the fact what, that we what, what's the next, next issue for rugby Well, I'll be very interested to hear what... Um, head what, injury what, assessment? What George is more directly... Quite, quite, well, quite happy. I finished the game a, a little while ago and, and I think the, the area that I see, you know, that would worry me in the future um, is you've, the, if you look at the sport, you look at the rules, you look at what's, what, what, what is it useful to be if you're playing rugby and it's being very skilled, very fast, but also having a big physical stature is very important. So what's the one area that, that obviously can influence that? And that, that would be, you know, illicit drugs, performance-enhancing drugs. And and for me, that is where I want to, you know, I would want to make sure that that doesn't creep into the game. You know, if, you, if, if, if you're in a position where that starts happening, you know, it can be very dangerous for the, for the so players involved. So you're talking involved. about steroids. Yeah, yeah, performance-enhancing drugs, steroids, uh, testosterone boosts, all these different things that, that pe- people could potentially use if, if the testing wasn't stringent enough and in place in the right way. Uh, I think it's definitely, it's definitely an area that, that people should make sure we keep a close eye on. As a consequence of that, though, is not the concussion issue. If you've got bigger, stronger, uh, force equals mass times acceleration, 
then concussion is a natural consequence of all that. And that, I think, is one of the huge, huge issues that rugby is going to face. We've seen it in the NFL, billion pound lawsuits and all that sort of thing. And it's not going to be long before yeah, we see I'm, that coming I'm over met, to England I'm, I'm and met, rugby. I met briefly with uh, Bennett Amalu, the uh, NFL uh, brain doctor at the, the union in Oxford. We had a chat about it. We spoke about concussion. He said, oh yeah, concussion. It's not concussion, it's brain damage. When you use words like brain damage instead of concussion, yeah. it really does challenge the the argument that, oh, it's okay and it's all fine. It's a serious issue that needs to be kept in mind. It's been a fascinating discussion. I, I think perhaps we should leave the last word to Tom Williams, who feels that he will never be able to shake Bloodgate and that the stigma attached to his name will always be there. It's tough because some some might ask well did you expect that to go away as a result of telling the truth uh, on that second hearing did you think that would change and I don't think it I did think it would change I knew that that stigma would be with my name forever being involved in rugby and it's pretty tough having to live with not being recognised for the good achievements and the great achievements on occasions that I, uh, I and we have had as Harlequins in winning the premiership for example um, it's hard not to be recognised in that way when Harlequins get accolades for doing very well in the league and they're not referred to Harlequins for club at the centre of Bloodgate whereas from a personal perspective it's Tom Williams uh, former rugby player for Harlequins now coach player at the centre of Bloodgate and it's, it's pretty hard to be referred to in that, in that manner but I just look at it and I try and look at it from a po- positive perspective and think okay look it's with you you can't deal with it you can't change it but you've got to deal with it in the best way possible and try and turn turn it into something positive, not necessarily for me personally, but for other people. Yes, he, he's wrestling with the past, isn't he, Mark? And, and incidentally, sad, and can I just say a sad final development? He he retired from rugby, all yes. forms of rugby, and he left Harlequins yesterday. So even now, seventeen Bloodgate, years with them. Bloodgate is claiming casualties. And, and he got up that morning thinking, I'm going to play for Harlequins. I love playing the game of rugby and probably never thought that he would be given a little capsule with some fake blood in it and all the problems that would come along and have changed his life, you know, for good, really, as we just heard. Um, it's been an amazing documentary, Mark. Well done to you and James. Thank you very much. And the team for putting it's it together. It's been a fascinating uh, and, exercise. Yeah, and I've got to say... George, uh, who turned up in the studio armed with sweets for us to eat, which was very nice of you. <laughs> I mean, right. I, I know it's it's been difficult to come in because you were part of the Harlequins on the, that particular day. You, your memory is perhaps not as sharp as Mark's after all his research, but you were there. Uh, you know, a, a momentous day for all the wrong reasons in in the history of um, English rugby union. Yeah, but I think I think there there are lots of you know lots of things with all this stuff. It's what you take away from it and what you learn from it. And I think there's plenty to be learned from. I think there's positive steps that have been taken. And I think it's great that we can have this discussion open and honestly today. Yeah, absolutely. Good to see both of you. Thank you very much. The game itself, despite all efforts, Quinns didn't win it. Leinster did. And they went on to win the Heineken Cup in that season as well. Bloodgate, 10 years on. Good night. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. 
Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. History.